Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Today we're going to talk about a frontier that relatively few Britons have crossed. But for the two million-odd Eastern Europeans who've come to the UK in the past 20 years, it's loomed large in their lives. I'm talking about the Iron Curtain, the division between countries in the Soviet sphere and Western Europe. And Timothy Phillips is here to talk about his journey along it and the book he's written about it. Welcome to The Bunker, Tim. Hello, nice to be here. Tim, you'd been thinking of making a trip along the Iron Curtain for a long time, hadn't you? Yes, I had. I started studying Russian at school back in 1991, uh, just as the Iron Curtain had collapsed and the Soviet Union was breathing its last. And I spent five years at school only studying Russian through Soviet-era textbooks. And I developed a fascination for Eastern Europe and the Cold War. A bit later on, I then realised that what I'd been told at school about Churchill saying that the Iron Curtain ran from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic wasn't exactly correct. That's partly because it never ran through Stettin and partly because actually the east-west frontier went far to the north of that and far to the south of that. And I developed a kind of bucket list idea in my head that I would love to travel the full length of it one day. So where does it start and end? Well, it started, in my view, at the very top of Europe in the Arctic Circle on the Norwegian-Russian frontier, was the Norwegian-Soviet frontier, just where they meet the Barents Sea. And that's because Norway was in NATO. It was one of the founder members of NATO. And the Soviet Union, of course, was the most important power in the Warsaw Pact. So really, that's where the two military of the Western capitalist democratic system of government and the Eastern socialist authoritarian, many people would say, form of government met. And it's actually 5,000 kilometres long? Yeah, that's right. It stretches all the way down to the last place that can be called European, perhaps at a stretch where NATO and the Warsaw Pact touched each other. And that's far in the east of Turkey, where Turkey has a very, very narrow border with Azerbaijan, which was also part of the Soviet Union. And where did you start this pretty epic trip. How long did it take you to get all the way? It took me four months to travel. I'd been to many of the places before for other pieces of research and for holidays, but I did do the trip in one go as well back in 2019, just before a different kind of Iron Curtain came down on the world in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I flew from London to Oslo and then took a flight from Oslo to the Arctic Circle to a place called Kirkenes, which is a tiny town that is the largest settlement for a long way in all directions on the Norwegian border with Russia. And do you see the old border there? Is it something that's still physically present? You see it in different ways. So up there between Norway and Russia, 
there aren't very many people. And even in the Cold War, which was famous for people trying to escape from east to west, there really weren't very many people who went to the Arctic Circle to try to escape. So back in Soviet times, there was a barbed wire fence and lots of lookout points on the Soviet side. And that's basically what remains today. And you can see something that's very similar to what you would have seen before 1991. Elsewhere, further south, as some of your listeners may know, in Germany there are lots of museums and other monuments that record the inner German border that separated East and West Germany. So in, in that place, in Germany, you can really see the physical infrastructure of division, sometimes remnants of the Berlin Wall, remnants of the border fence system, which was incredibly elaborate, and also checkpoints that have been preserved as museums. Are there places where it's pretty much disappeared? any evidence that there was a border there that you really just can't see it anymore? Yes, absolutely. Perhaps a good example of that is the border between Bavaria in Germany and Czechia, the Czech Republic. So both of those countries are now in the European Union and in NATO. There is no border infrastructure whatsoever. They're in Schengen. You don't need to show a passport to go between Germany and Czechia. And what you find with local people is that they have worked out quite cannily on both sides which kinds of services and products are cheaper in which country, and they routinely go across to fill up their tanks or get their teeth seen to or have opticians appointments in the country where it's cheaper. It's hard to recall now just what a big deal it was to cross the Iron Curtain without permission. And in Slovakia, you discovered the story of a half-wolf, half-dog that was bred specially to attack people trying to cross, didn't you? Yes. There are lots of ways of understanding why this border was so immense and so difficult to cross. It, it was an ideological division. It was also a line where people thought if there was going to be a conflict in Europe, it would start there. But perhaps the most important insight is that it was a border that developed to stop people in the East from leaving. Um, it got stronger and stronger because the regimes in the East were frightened that lots of their professionals, lots of their young people would flee if they could to the West. They didn't admit that publicly, but that was really the reality of why it was so firm. And so what you find in different places is that they develop more and more elaborate, you might even say absurd, ways of trying to stop people from leaving. So in Germany, you have self-shooting devices, which would fire shrapnel into you if you touched the fence. In Czechoslovakia, what they did in the 1950s was breed dogs with to create a very fierce, very unmanageable kind of guard dog, which really would tear people to shreds rather and ask questions later, if you like. And, and I have a story in the book about one particular individual who tried to escape and, and was killed in that way. Nonetheless, you encountered quite a bit of Cold War nostalgia on the trip, didn't you? What are people nostalgic for about that period? Yes, I suppose I should begin answering that question with a bit of full disclosure, because as I said at the beginning, I have some nostalgia, some nostalgie for the East that I've carried with me because I was never able to visit it. But the kind of nostalgia that lots of people have in the Old East is a bit different, a bit more political. It has a harder edge to it. And, and, and one of the ways, one of the reasons for that is that a lot of people didn't expect the societies they lived in up to 1989 or 1991 to collapse and disappear so quickly. And when they did collapse, that meant they lost their jobs, they lost their savings, 
they lost the structures that had organized their lives. We, we have to remember that although the regimes were in some ways unpopular and not voted for by people who lived in the countries, the communist parties and socialist parties of Eastern Europe had millions of members. And they might have belonged to those parties for all kinds of reasons, but suddenly that structure was taken from under their feet. And they were promised a lot of things about what the new future would bring. And for many of them, it, it all hasn't come true. Or perhaps some of it has come true. They have a nice car, they can go on foreign holidays, but they dislike some other aspects of the new society. And, and so increasingly, older generations have felt this sense that uh, it would have been, it was better before and it would be better if some of what we had before could come back. And how about people, and there must be, well, there are an increasing number who don't remember the Cold War or who were too young to remember the end of it. Is there a certain amount of nostalgia there as well? More limited. I think what I found as I travelled was that young people, first and foremost, are plugged into the global mainstream of kind of culture through Instagram, through TikTok, through Twitter. And they think firstly about their lives in relation to the lives of people all over the world. But some people do find a fascination with what has gone before. And I think in particular in Russia, where at the end of the Cold War was, in addition to everything else, which was shared with other people in Eastern Europe, it was the collapse of an empire that they had sat at the centre of. I think you do find more widely among generations a sense that Russia has somehow been treated unduly harshly and something unfair has happened and it would be better if Russia could be more powerful again. And you see that in particular in opinion polls in Russia, which have to be treated with caution. But still, Stalin, who is perhaps the kind of worst face of Eastern European communism from the point of view of us in the West, the most, the harshest period was under Stalinism. Stalin's popularity has been growing and growing among all age groups in Russia over the last 10 years. Do you think a new Iron Curtain is developing with Russia now? I mean, given it's given what's happening in Ukraine and growing fears and more countries trying to join NATO, is there a chance that there could be a new border like the Iron Curtain springing up? It's a good question. I think there are two answers to that. First of all, in the north, Norway, Finland, Sweden, which had a kind of maritime border with the Soviet Union, you see the borders that did exist, so the same line as the Iron Curtain, becoming more militarised again. So we know that Finland and Sweden have applied to join NATO this year, which they never did during the whole of the Cold War. So in that sense, that traditional border between Russia and the West is resembling the Iron Curtain more. And then secondly, we see that part of Ukraine is occupied. And we see that the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and also Poland, which are now part of NATO, we see that they're very frightened about their border with Russia and their border with Belarus. And it does seem that Russians are finding it harder to leave, even if they want to, because those countries don't want to accept their visas or let them in as tourists. So the kind of mutual misunderstanding and the heightened fear of attack, which were common features throughout the 45 years of the Cold War, they have come back in a big way in recent years, slowly first and then quickly this year. In the book, you tell us about a train carriage with a sign in Finland warning Finns not to look out at Soviet territory as they passed through it. 
How did that come about that you weren't allowed even to look at something over the border? Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's a Finnish place called Porkala, which is a piece of Finland really quite a long way from the Soviet or Russian border. It's over 200 kilometers away. But at the end of the Second World War, Stalin seized it. He literally took a map and drew with a pen the bit of Finnish territory he wanted. And because he had defeated Finland, he took it and heavily militarized it. So it was on the main train line between Finland's two biggest cities, Helsinki and Turku. And in order to go from Helsinki to Turku, you had to go through it. And the Soviet occupiers of the territory said, we can't be allowing Finns who are untrustworthy to see any of this territory. So they demanded that the shutters were pulled down and also that an armed guard was put on the train. A Soviet armed guard was put on the train for the duration of, I think it was about 40 minutes that it ran through. And one of the people I interviewed, his mother had been on the train in the 1950s when another woman had gone into labor on the train. And what would have been normal would have been to halt the train and find the nearest village and get help, but they insisted that they had to run through. And everyone agreed about that because they didn't all want to be stuck in Soviet territory. But you know, there's an interesting punchline to that story because it was very tense there. It really was a a Cold War hotspot until the mid-1950s. And then suddenly, and in a way that probably most people wouldn't have expected, Khrushchev came to power and he let it be known that he wanted to give it back. He didn't want it anymore. And one of the reputations Russians have, Russian governments have, is that they never give back territory once they've occupied it. Actually, in my research for the book, I found this example and a couple of others where they had voluntarily decided to step back. And I think that should give us hope for today, perhaps not with President Putin in power, but perhaps that someone else might come come along and have a more rational attitude. Does it sadden you, as someone with a doctorate in Russian history, to think that the hopes of the late 80s have come to this? Yeah, it's immensely saddening. Obviously, of all people with some skin in the game, I'm among the least affected. People inside Russia, people inside Ukraine, and people closer to to Russia and Ukraine are much more affected by all this. But I think you do develop a special connection to something that you give a lot of your professional time to. I have friends in, in Russia, friends in Ukraine. I think people in the countries around Russia would always have told you that it was difficult to be Moscow's neighbour. And I think I always hoped, probably against hope, that that there would be more liberalising influences in Moscow, that it would have a more sophisticated attitude towards influence and territory, rather than thinking that you have to be there and own it and occupy it and destroy all dissent. And, And it's very sad that you know, those hopes against hope haven't come true or not yet. And in fact, the reverse. Which was the most poignant, moving, I suppose, part of the frontier that you found? Where did you find yourself most affected by by history? I think I found myself most affected by history when I saw a version of it happening today, happening in the present. I was on the border between Greece and North Macedonia, which would have been a Cold War frontier between Greece and Yugoslavia. And I was crossing from Greece to North Macedonia when a black man on the bus I was traveling with was pulled off and had his documents queried. And eventually, after quite a long delay, he was arrested and our bus proceeded. And and the next day, I visited a refugee camp in North Macedonia where other people who had been trying to move through Europe 
from Africa and the Middle East were detained, been more successful than him, but then hadn't been able to get any further. And I guess I realised that countries, governments build, try to build absolute uncrossable frontiers for all kinds of reasons. And we know that between the US and Mexico in Israel and the occupied territories. But seeing it at work and seeing how it was permeable for me, there was no question that I could go from Greece to North Macedonia, but it was absolutely impossible for that traveller and for so many others. And thinking about kind of the, the different mindsets of us and how really how I couldn't switch places with him and he couldn't switch places with me. I think that was a feeling that lots of people had in the Cold War and, and perhaps most of all in Berlin, where Famously, the tube trains ran through East and West. And so you, as an East Berliner, you might constantly be somehow going under the West, which you might wish very much to go and live in, but you couldn't. And then the next stop would come and you'd be back in East Berlin. And what was the most beautiful part of the, of the old Iron Curtain for you? I was surprised one morning. I arrived on a Flix bus in Ljubljana after travelling all night from Budapest and I had to get from Ljubljana in Slovenia to the Slovenian border with Italy. And I rocked up at the train station and just bought an ordinary ticket to go on the train there. Nine euros, I think it cost. And suddenly, after about half an hour, we were in this amazing area that's known as the Julian Alps, this mountain range with this beautiful turquoise blue river running alongside the train line for hours for two hours and you go in and out of tunnels and every time you come out of a tunnel it's like the shutter on a camera opening on a new beautiful vista and then at the end of it you you arrive i arrived in a place called Novogorica, which is a city in slovenia but it is adjacent to, completely contiguous with, Gorizia, which is a city in Italy. And you step out of the train station, and the train station is in Slovenia, and it's in a small square called Train Station Square, Transalpina Square. And you look across, and the buildings immediately opposite you are in Italy. And somewhere in the middle of the square runs the international border, which was the Iron Curtain. And it was a really fierce Iron Curtain between Yugoslavia and Italy for the first 10 to 15 years of the Cold War. Then it got a bit easier. But there's something very moving about seeing a square that was literally divided in two by barbed wire and breeze blocks and being able to walk endlessly back and forth across it. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. The Curtain and the Wall by Timothy Phillips is published by Granta. And while I was researching this pod, I found that the Council of Europe actually has a cycling route along the Iron Curtain that you can follow. So Google that if you want to follow in Tim's footsteps. It's a long way, but if you do it, tell us about it. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. And if you want to support us for a few quid a month, you can do so by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get a shout out and start your week and lots of benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.